healthcare. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Nearly a two-word review just a shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the last minute. Welcome back to the Music Club, you are now tuning in to yet another exciting adventure with us here on Discologist. I'm your host, Kevin, as usual. We're so happy to have you here hanging out at the tiny shack just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Bayview to be exact. It's still Milwaukee, but it's uh, just a little south. Like, across the bridge south. It's a nice place. Come visit sometime. Uh, talking to you today about an album that is near and dear to my heart. Hopefully it is near and dear to yours. R.E.M.'s Monster. R.E.M. is something we've talked about sporadically on this podcast, but uh, this is a band that really was my shit. Uh, as I say, it was extremely my shit uh, growing up in the 80s, starting with Murmur and... And all the way through, uh, I, I was on the ride for pretty much the whole way uh, until Bill Barry left. But they have this remarkable run of albums, Murmur, Reckoning, Fables of the Reconstruction, Life Switch Pageant, Document, Green, Out of Time, Automatic for the People, uh, and, and just increasingly got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until they were, in fact, the biggest band in the world. Uh, that is, look it up on Wikipedia, folks. It's It's a fact. So, but this this band of, of Bill Berry, Michael Mills, uh, Michael Stipe, Peter Buck, they, they changed history uh, by just rocking out from Athens, Georgia. And so after their eighth album, Automatic for the People, we are the fans and, and, and the media and everything. We wonder what the hell is going to happen next. There are rumors that they were going to produce a rock album. They're getting back to rock and roll. What we didn't know is that they were going to get back to the rock and roll of that uh, 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 was, was sort of lurking in their hearts. Everything that they had said that had ever influenced them ended up on this album. You're talking about uh, glam rock. You're talking about post-punk. You're talking about uh, avant-garde, noise rock. You're talking stuff like Sonic Youth is in there. You know, they, they basically picked up the culture that was going on around them, the musical culture, and distilled it through their unique lens and created a, uh, a wrongfully and but much blind masterpiece, in my opinion, uh, in Monster, which is about their fame. It is about loss. Uh, it's devoted to uh, River Phoenix, who died uh, early in the production of this, and Kurt Cobain, who uh, was subject to one of the songs on this. And it is uh, one of their most powerful statements as a band now, 25 years later, it resonates, I think, even harder. It sounds uh, like most of their stuff, timeless, but this is, this sounds, it, it's always going to sound like it's in the future. And, uh, and it is, uh, it's just, it's just a remarkable piece of work. So we're going to be talking about that today. Uh, before we get to that, I want to talk to you about OsirisPod.com. You go to the Osiris Podcast Network at OsirisPod.com. You're going to find our show, along with Dead to Me, along with all kinds of other great shows. And it's all about music, folks. All about music all the time. Every aspect of music. They just uh, did a – they're launching a series right now about the Big Cypress Big Cyper show. 
that fish through at the dawn of the 21st century uh, if you're into that sort of thing but they've got like so much great stuff so if you go there uh, OsirisPod.com you can find out all about that they're also partnered with JamBase.com who uh, will bring you the best coverage in Jam related music on the planet as they are wont to do so they've been doing that for a bunch of years and and they're killing it so go to JamBase.com go to OsirisPod.com and Fly your freak flag high. How about that? That's what that's what you should do. And REM certainly was doing it on this. And so, without further ado, we're just going to do what we do. Anything and start at the top. Uh, this is the first single, the first track, the first sort of shot across the bow from REM for what uh, many, or at least I, consider to be one of their finest hours. This is what's the frequency, Kenneth. What's the Frequency Kenneth, the lead off single and first track off of R.E.M.'s ninth album, Monster. Joining me now, Mr. Michael Zwern. Michael, before we really get into this, I think it's fair that we both establish what kind of R.E.M. fans we were. Uh, I don't know about you, sure. but I, but I uh, had a license plate that said BBM Stipe, Barry Buckmills and Stipe, uh, for about a decade they were the first band that I fell in love with. They they were rock and roll to me for for basically most of my musical development. So that's where I'm coming mm-hmm. from. What about you? Yeah, I never had a personalized license plate, but they were the first band <laughs> that I ever truly loved. And they were the first band that really got me down the road of becoming a you know, a really dedicated music listener. So so they were sort of central to my listening development as a high school student and then into college. So there was the core rock band for most of my early to middle adulthood. Did you balance this with uh, U2 at all? 
You know, I love you two. I like listen to you two a lot. You two was never as personally important to me as REM was. Because mm-hmm. those were the two big bands coming up, I think, for people of our age. And, sure. And and certainly in the of 80s, course, and certainly like defining, redefining like college rock, alt rock, whatever it's going to be. By 1994, mm-hmm. when this album comes out, uh, they have become the biggest band on the planet. There was uh, this this amazing run of albums: uh, Murmur, Reckoning, mm-hmm. Fables of Reconstruction, Lightsworks Pageant, Document. And then came, uh, you know, people say this is the most divisive album. I think Green is the most divisive album by a long shot, produced mm. by the same guy, Scott Litt. But they went, Document was this uh, almost uh, proto-post-punk at the same time album, even though it had its The End of the World as we know it on it. But Green, uh, they just signed this massive deal with Warner Brothers, and they are now the biggest band on the planet, and their album sounds clean. <laughs> which yeah. which I, I don't know about you. I think back in the day that was kind of a sin. You know, you could you could hear the well, grime, it, you could hear the stuff yeah. on, on, on the other albums, but but that was just like, holy fuck, this is produced. Yeah, and so they, they sort of had vaulted to the top of the global charts. First Green, which is a big record, has their first major pop hit, and then Out of Time and Automatic for the People, which are kind of like world conquering, yeah. massive arena level audience records. So these are you know, these are among the biggest records in the world for about a half decade long span. They're yeah. the biggest, if not if not for you two, they are the biggest band on the planet. So yeah, and hugely and automatic, hugely, but still, but still credible. That's the thing. They were still credible to a lot. <laughs> we're gonna of get to that. We're gonna because they were. They were very credible and automatic. And out of time, curiously, they decided not to tour. They were like, you know what? Right. We are so big and burnt out after Green. Uh, if you want to see one of the greatest concert films of all time, I think. Uh, look up tour film by REM. I yes. don't know if even if it's on streaming, you might have to buy a DVD at this point. But it is you, you could see, borrow my VHS cassette. Yeah, there you go. My mine wore out, uh, and and you will. <laughs> I, I hate this type of term in music journalism, but you really see a band at the peak of their powers. They they were unstoppable. If you saw them at all on this tour, this is what the literally the entirety of this industry performing live is based on like what the work they were doing on stage then um in my opinion at least so you know they went uh for some people that thought they went soft on out of time then uh, a little softer on automatic for the people despite that being uh, some of their best songs and and as automatic for the people was winding down i think it was peter buck said oh don't worry we're going to make a rock album <laughs> we're gonna get back to rocking and uh, and people were like, oh, what, what does that mean? You're going to get back to rocking. And so when Monster dropped, the expectations were high. They had, by somehow by staying out of the spotlight, become even bigger. <laughs> they, they made all these fantastic videos. And so they, they dropped this album that is uh, part, like, glam. It is part pop rock. It is... Uh, it, it, almost sounds to me like an album of all their influences just worn on their sleeve. If you were if you were walking the aisles in the stacks at Walk Street Records in Athens, Georgia, where Peter Buck used to work, like it's like they're just pulling records off the shelf and putting them together. Uh, and doing so with in the background grunge in full swing and grunge dying. 
Right. Not just grunge dying, but Cobain suicide. So yes, in in context, so this is 1994, so we're a quarter century past. But um, I was living in New Zealand when this record came out, and I was in college. I was a student overseas in New Zealand, and I'd been a huge R.E.M. fan for quite a few years. So I was, you know, extraordinarily excited that this record was coming out. I was not in a position to see them when they were touring in that record because I was in New Zealand. And so when What's the Frequency, Kenneth, comes out, first off, it is lyrically somewhat obscure, although it quickly, you know, it quickly, the backstory behind it was quickly explained. And yeah. so the record has this much harder guitar tone, which is clearly, it's associated with grunge, but to me, it sounds a lot more like Neil Young and Crazy Horse, which was yeah. a huge inspiration for both grunge and for Peter Buck. And I think to me that, that what they were doing on the 94 issue of Monster, to me sounds like what Neil Young was doing in and around the same time with the idea of using feedback and guitar noise within a kind of a pop rock song structure. Uh, mm -hmm. Young had done Rockin' in the Free World a couple of years ago uh, before that record came out and then Sonic Youth toured with him and then Pearl Jam covered Rockin' in the Free World. And, and that guitar tone to me seems what Buck was pulling from most directly. Although grunge is in there, industrial is in there, noise rock is in there. There's a lot of stuff in there. But to me, the closest inspiration to me is Crazy Horse. And I don't know if I'm an outlier to that. Everyone says post-grunge, but to me, it I don't pulls think from Neil Young. Okay. I think... Where, yeah, yeah. I, where do you no, think it I, ties to? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think they did a neat trick that you two also did that uh, Bowie did the best out of, out of everybody, uh, where they take uh, they they're, they're versed in the in quote unquote underground, and they take all this like research that they've done, you know, whether it's bands that they played with, uh, bands that they love, uh, you know, if if you get to this level, you just have records all you have all the records before streaming. So you get exposed to all this. You're into the scene. And and so they're not just pulling from that, though. They're also, like, pulling up people. So, for example, the tour for this, Sonic Youth opened. Bands like Luscious Jackson. Yep. A little band yep. called Radiohead opened for the I think I heard of them. Tour. Yeah, yeah. And and so they were, they were at, while they're sonically, like, they're looking forward and back at the same time. I think Neil Young is the correct touch point before that. It was Roger McGuinn and the Birds. I think that, that's where, like, really the meat of, of their work was focused on. And, uh, and like, the result, the resulting sound, it's like they took this, this more aggressive guitar sound that they, that Scott Litt, I believe, developed on Green uh, for them and just blew it through the fucking roof. Uh, there's, there's a, there's, no better like uh, example of this I think on this album than this song Crush with Island. Oh my kiss, breath, turn 
don't know when that song was made. If, if you don't tell me, <laughs> like I, I just it is it is timeless, but it does feel like everything that was going on at that time. And if you point to the mid '90s, you could be like, "What did it sound like?" Probably like that. And all these bands. That's that is the for me the greatest triumph of this album. Uh, and to some extent, the album after this, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, is that they were able to distill a zeitgeist and infuse it, then give it a shot that is all the history that developed that. So it's an instant education in rock and roll. Because I didn't, like, I didn't have access to all these things. Like, I, I wasn't listening to Sonic Youth, but I was after this. To me, one of the interesting points is how clearly this is... Uh, Derived, derived in part from Iggy Pop and the Stooges, and they specifically make a, a couple of Iggy Pop references. And in their previous tour, they used to cover um, uh, "Fun Time," which was an Iggy Pop David Bowie song. And they there's some real Stooges pieces in this too, which is not anything I would have expected from REM up to that point. And it was really kind of an outlier in REM's total career, but. But that, you know, that kind of sludginess, that kind of heaviness to the guitar tone. And and that's where I think they were pulling from some of the same inspirations that the grunge era pulled from. But I don't know if they were pulling directly from their grunge, you know, immediate descendants. I mean, the grunge stuff in Seattle was basically the next huge scene after the Athens scene had broken. But even though there was... Even though they were somewhat closely affiliated, I think, ideologically, and they were simpatico in a kind of a philosophical perspective, I don't think R.E.M. pulled musically from Pearl Jam and, and Nirvana and whatnot. I think they respected each other a great deal, and, and obviously Stipe and Cobain respected each other tremendously. But I think that they were going back farther back. So Iggy Pop, The Birds, the, you know, the heavier stuff from the earlier days. You're talking about a song like Circus. That heavy sludgy kind of sexual tone to the guitar and the singing much more direct kind of in your face than some of Stipe's earlier singing had been. Um, and, you know, I was never much of a listener to Iggy Pop and the Stooges, but that sort of connection made me more interested in knowing what, what was coming out of that. So just like you said about Sonic Youth, I mean, they brought you into that larger universe of, mus mm -hmm. of musical influences because they were touching on those same points that you might not have been aware of previously. And it's, it, it, it's completely subliminal. That, that, that for me, was is my experience looking back at this 25 years later. Because now the bands that like we're talking about that influence this, like now these are my favorite bands. Of course, why wouldn't they be? Because I was, they, REM, like a monster, put them in front of me and said, do you like us? <laughs> do you like all our friends? Who at that point, like our friends, you know, um, there, there's, you know, some some throwbacks on this to I think the earlier sound, Star 69 uh, is a song that, that is very much could have ended up on document if you take away a little bit of the rat pedal. 
maybe. Yeah, but, but but no one today, no one today is going to know what Star Sixty Nine is about. Yeah, no, it's not. It's it's a <laughs> it's a callback. You hit, you hit Star Sixty Nine, and somebody calls. Uh, you, you land, landline reference, but uh, but they one thing that they developed on uh, Out of Time and and Automatic for the People that they they started exploring on on Green was Stipe's uh, ridiculous ability to write not just a pop song but a love song, which he said early in their career he would never write love songs. They said he intentionally did not write love songs. He gave it up, but but here's the here's the the fascinating thing about this is that for a short period in time, I think he was the best at it. Uh, and and I you look at some of these songs like Night Swimming, off of uh, Automatic for the People. Uh, you look at even like Me and Honey, uh, which is a little weirder love song of that. But this song, Strange Currencies, I think may be the best song that he's written. Michael, if you aren't now in touch with your teenage Michael, like that, 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 no, no, that cuts, that cuts to just the awkwardness of love and yearning. And it dials everything back on this album and delivers something that like their heroes, like Brian Wilson, huge Pet Sounds fans. Huge Beach Boys fans, uh, and and as psychedelic as Pet Sounds gets at times, like truly psychedelic, not in the, in the weird spaz out sense. I think this is another thing that they're touching on on this, where they uh, at least Stipe or probably Mike Mills too, really just integrated Brian Wilson's style into their life and figured out how to come out with a work like this. This is. Uh, it, years later, this is a stunning song. If you put it on, it is one of the timeless works of their their thing. And if anything survives, like I want this song to survive. 
from their whole catalog. Yeah, and thanks for crediting Mike Mills because I think he was he was always one of the classic pop listeners among REM. I mean, uh, Stipe has you know sort of bubblegum influences and and Patti Smith influences, and Peter Buck was much more of a guitar rock guy. But Mike Mills always loved sort of the sweet pop melodies, and so you got uh, Strange Currencies, you got I Don't Sleep by a Dream, and you got some of these gorgeous sort of ballady pieces, which REM had sort of started doing, I think, the earliest example that I really think of was the untitled closings track on Green, which doesn't have a title, but it's this gloriously sweet little loving lullaby, kind of. And then they they really excelled at those on Out of Time and Automatic for the People. And then Strange Currencies, they, and they have this way that Stipe has of conveying both intimacy and yearning in the same way. And there's also an undisguised kind of sexual component to this record. Not so much Strange Currencies, but some of the other records are very explicitly about physical relationships. You know, there's a lot of very, you know, direct sexual references in this record. But Strange Currencies is just this classic love song. You could imagine it being done in all kinds of musical styles, but the but the vocals on this, the vocals are glorious on Strange Currencies. It's one of his best sung performances of that era. That's a really good point about it being um, a little more sexual. You got to realize at this time Michael Stipe is actually coming out. He isn't. He isn't out. If if you can believe that, uh, because uh, you know in the nineties that wasn't really safe, uh, either like just practically or uh, or professionally. You know, people... Professionally, I would say. Yeah, the ambiguity was what protected them for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But he says um, on the song Tongue... falsetto and he's singing like uh, I, I'm ashamed to say a good girls know their fate anyone can get laid and uh, and he's talking about this sort of broken relationship that uh, you know call my name here I come your last ditch lay will I ever learn uh, you know this is uh, this is material that Stipe has never uh, gotten into too much, and I don't know that he got into it later on in his career. I think it's it, it's weirdly because he was just on the cusp of being like, "Hey guys, in case you didn't figure this out, <laughs> I'm a gay man and have always been a gay man," and uh, and so it, it worked into his work, um, and and sort of hid there in plain sight. And again, the results are tremendous. 
that song that song is you know he wasn't disguising a lot of stuff at that point lyrically beyond that there is you brought it up a few times um this connection to grunge this connection to kurt cobain kurt cobain all those guys loved rem how could they not they were they they were the godfathers they were responsible for the industry um in a very real sense and uh when kurt cobain killed himself like rem returned the respect right they they loved all these bands they were like hey we did all this, and look what's how it's evolving. This is beautiful. Uh, but him and Stipe had sort of uh, sparked up a friendship, the, the mutual admiration. And uh, it, it devastated them while they were making this album. This song, Let Me In, is I, I remember I remember the day Kurt Cobain killed himself, and I remember the day this album came out, and I remember finding out that this song was on this and, and wanting to hear that because you wanted answers. And... I remember how just sparse it was, how, how how empty. There was none of the bombast. It's just Mike Mills on guitar, some organ, and 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 Michael Stipe uh, pouring some real pain in, into this. And 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 you know, much like the duality uh, you were talking about, and what he can do, he could also take this grief, but also make it um, make it appealing. Get very appealing, like, like you want. There's something about his voice that has always felt so goddamn human, uh, and and on this, it's nothing. It, it, this is just a good cut. Here's a little bit of it. Track's devastating. Um, that's near the end of the album, and there's, uh, you know, you ends the album, similar vibe, but the weight isn't there. But, but all said and done, is like the statement that this album ends up making. Uh, Stephen Hyden put out an article today. I was talking about it. It signaled the end of alt rock. I don't know. I don't know about that, but uh, it did signal that. All the things that people had been working on all these years was kind of instantly validated for a different audience because of how people received this. REM fans were not really plussed on this for some reason. Uh, I mean, I, I loved it, but but there were a lot of people that didn't. But but the general populace was just like that. You know, you said Bang and Blame, but that was a single. And that single was just like if you, it, that leads directly to sort of the assy albums that they made down the road that people think that's REM. I have no idea, but I think REM must have sold thirty or forty million records in the span of four or five years in that span of time. Between Automatic, Monster, and Out of Time was still massively popular. I mean, these were all came out in the span of a few short years, and they were, you know, global 
smash hit records and that doesn't happen anymore so you know you you just have that bigness to the sound that's hard to find nowadays yeah it's a bigness it's a bigness to the band there's a mythological quality to R.E.M. at this point um, that you don't get uh, I think Wilco maybe Wilco and Radiohead are still around but you, you just don't see that in a lot of bands you see rabid following and rabid fan bases but you don't not this mythical quality like R.E.M. was up there with Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, Beach Boys. They 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 occupy that space now. Yeah, sort of the you know the Mount Rushmore of famous rock ensembles over time. Because you can't get to that, you can't get to that quickly. You have to build up a body of work, and by this time they're around for like fourteen years. They've been a band, active touring, writing for fourteen years, and they had built up that stature and that credibility. So. When when they release a record, even a record that is not universally beloved, like Monster is not universally beloved, you know, it assumes a cultural significance and import that a record from a new person doesn't usually get because it doesn't have the track record behind it. Um, and, and we should, you know, we should briefly talk about the famously possibly apocryphal uh, description of this being the most ubiquitous record and use cd stores you're familiar with this right <laughs> yeah yeah i i don't understand so it, but... so i don't understand it either but if you look at it in the context of they had had extraordinary massive success for three records in a row and then they released a record whose production values were kind of off-putting to some of the folks who loved uh everybody hurts or whatever so some of those people are going to buy the record, not like the record, put the record back in the CD store, and it's going to become universal. I don't know if that's really true or not, but it became such a um, a record store kind of trope or a cliche to describe that as the most ubiquitous record in UCD stacks. I have no idea if that's the case. But 25 years later, the record still holds up if you don't go into it assuming it's going to be another out of time or automatic for the people. It's a record very much in its own artistic uh, universe in REM's entire, you know, catalog. It doesn't, it doesn't really fit next to anything else, particularly uh, directly. I, I, you know what? I actually kind of disagree with that. I think if you take away uh, Out of Time and Automatic for the People, this is the logical next step after Green. I think they took an interesting detour. How many years after? Is five and a half years plus or minus? Yeah, something Five like that. years, six, five and a half years. So, yeah, Green had stadium-sized rock songs with Orange Crush and whatnot. So you can imagine if you take that and you bring the, the sound of grunge and a more sexual forward vocal performance from Stipe, yeah, you can get to Monster from there. I, absolutely, I agree with you. But, you know, out of time and automatic are so dominant in their history, it's, it's harder to remember that, tra that trajectory from document to green and then ultimately monster. Yeah. And then from here, uh, people should know who aren't really uh, R.E.M. fans, which would be weird if you listen to this, if you are or not. Um, you know, they go to New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Uh, Bill Berry famously had an aneurysm on the monster tour, the gigantic world shattering monster tour and uh, left the band because of it. Uh, he, he said, you know what, I'm going to go back to my farm in Athens, Georgia, rather than almost die. And that was a good choice. 
the band chose to go on, uh, your your satisfaction, or your mileage may vary on that. I, I find uh, Up to be one of their finest hours. I find everything else after that to not so much be. They, they hit the... We've got a few good singles that were mostly remakes of Man in the Moon, uh, if we're being honest, and um, some some good ideas, but uh, really a shadow of the band that they were. And and there's nothing wrong with that, I, I think. And a lot of people, like Daria, loves those last three or four albums, um, but it just didn't do that for me. So so to that point, as we sort of wind this down, like where does this sit for you in their discography which is now sealed up tight it's done yeah i would say it is not ultimately top tier it's top third i would say of of their records it's not murmur or automatic for the people which are you know you know unimpeachable classic all-around records it's way better than history had given it credit for it's way better than the record buying public gave it credit for and you have to listen to it in the context of what it was like at its time in the middle 1990s after grunge uh after after they had basically conquered the world on their own terms which is very difficult for any band to have done and a lot of bands openly emulated them for their artistic and and professional credibility at that point so they, you know it's it's not the very very top shelf of REM but it's a remarkably interesting and extremely surprising record when you listen to it in the context of like some of the sexual overtones, some of the direct rawness and anger and grief of Let Me In and You, and and then these amazingly gorgeous melodies and, and the love songs like Strange Currencies. I think I Don't Sleep, I Dream is like one of those lost REM classics that people don't give enough credit to. It, it sounds like you're saying a it's lot top tier in this record. <laughs> it sounds like it's you're saying it's top, top tier. <laughs> top tier. It's not like the one or two best. All right. I guess with REM, I have a highly, uh, shall we say, rose colored glasses. I love yeah. it, but it's not my one or two favorites. Yeah, I, I hear that. I hear that. I, um, you know, I mentioned New Avengers and Hi Fi being mine. I think if I'm going to reach for an REM album these days, I'm gonna go to probably Fables of the no, Lifeshirts Pageant, and this, and and I have obviously I have all of them. I celebrate all of them. I think Murmur through Fables of the Reconstruction is his whole thing. Uh, I think you saw Lifeshirts Pageant because that was a leap in production, uh, just like Green was a leap in production. And and this is a leap in production from the other two, and and I do hold the. The two, the duo of Out of Time and and Automatic for the People in a very special place. Like those are some, you know how some albums you're just like you doesn't you don't know who really made them. Well, at a certain point, they're so they're so sort of world conquering that they belong to the universe at large. You know, yes. those songs are indelible in millions and millions of people's minds. You know, you can't take uh losing my religion or or night swimming or uh everybody hurts you can't take that out of people's collective consciousness they're so uh ingrained by now but yeah i mean they're yeah. they're classic records all of the early records on is irs are classic records 
if such a body of work, it's kind of hard to go wrong unless you were to start at the three or four last ones, which you could go wrong. Yeah. I, I want everybody listening to this who came to REM late to forget they ever heard Man on the Moon. I, I want them to put that down, even though it's a great song. Spend a couple of weeks uh, with Murmur, Reckoning, Fables of the Reconstruction, and Life's Pageant. And then jump forward and explore something like Monster. And I think you're going to find uh, you think a little more fondly of it than you might have in the past. So, <laughs> so yeah. So uh, thanks for hanging out, Michael. Uh, <laughs> Monster has been in source for 25 years. If you don't have it, it's because you don't want it. <laughs> we'll be back in a few Ariam's Monster is in stores now. It has been for 25 years, so uh, go ahead and get it. Go, get, you know what? Get the. It's finally on vinyl. I, I drove to two counties this weekend to pick it up because they didn't have it at, at my usual store. Uh, there, there's a, a rather substantial box set out now to celebrate this. There's a few things. One thing we didn't talk about in this episode was the remixes. Um, don't believe the hype about the Let Me In remix. Uh, that song is perfect as it is, I think. And but it is worth listening to those remixes, and more importantly, the demos, and and more and more importantly, the live show that comes along with that set uh, to get this picture of a band that really, really uh, knocked it out of the park here, and uh, seemed to be at, at the height of their fame, but was really kind of winding it down. Um, it's a good piece of of anthropology. That's what I'm saying. So, so check it out. Thanks to Michael for hanging out and talking to them all about that. Uh, that is it for this episode of Discologist. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it now. Listen to us on Google Play, Mixcloud, Stitcher, Spotify. You can always find all our episodes up at ChunkyGlasses.com and now up at OsirisPod.com. You can go there uh, as well. And uh, if you go to ChunkyGlasses.com, because we are a Chunky Glasses production, you're going to find all the great live work of Mauricio Castro and his crew there in Washington, D.C. Out on the socials, we are at Chunky Glasses pretty much everywhere. I hope to see you out there. Uh, Coming up as we wind down this year, next week, we're going to be talking to Ryan Walsh. He put out a book called Astral Weeks. We'll probably post that interview up in the next week. You know what? Maybe we'll do that on Thursday. Uh, his band, Hallelujah the Hills, has been around for a real long time. And they made a lot of great music. But they have not made anything like this new album, I'm You, that's coming out on November 15th. So we're going to talk to Ryan about that. And it's going to be great. I can tell you that. And the album is fucking phenomenal. So, so that's what you have to look forward to. And then we're going to start to... Um, Sort of boxings up for season nine. Get out of here before the year gets too uh, too long in the tooth, and then uh, and then uh, we'll rest up and come back in the new year, in the new decade. How about that? All right. Well, we're out of here. Take care of yourself. The good to you but be better to your people. We'll talk to you soon.
<laughs> <laughs> Kenobi.